You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hi. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm thrilled because pitchers and catchers are starting to report. We're starting to actually see these guys showing up in places like Fort Myers and Scottsdale and wherever. And uh, even though it's excruciatingly cold here, it warms my cold black heart to see baseball players in the sun getting ready for a new season. Yeah, normally I I find uh, uh, spring training to be a bit of a tease because it's kind of long. But uh, this year, you know, the distraction is is nice (laughs) to see some... some, some people down. You see, you know, the you see the Red Sox you got Chris Sale in a Red Sox hat. Pablo Sandoval, looking good. Dropped forty pounds. Might I add, for two thousand eleven, he dropped forty pounds. Had a great year. Made the All Star team. I feel like this happens. This story happens a lot. I mean, if if there was ever a story that I dropped forty pounds, rushed me to the hospital immediately because I would die. But for him, hopefully that's a good thing, and um, they're going to need him because they don't really have any other third base options with Travis Shaw gone and Yohan Moncada gone. But anyway, we have some stuff to talk about today. We're going to start in the outfield. Uh, we obviously have to get to what happened in Pittsburgh last weekend, but I think we're going to start with outfield. You made that sound really ominous, like what happened in Pittsburgh last weekend. I mean, depending on how you want to take it, maybe that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I guess from your point of view. So we're going to talk about some outfields. We're going to talk about a uh, a free agent catcher who's been kind of making waves due to his unemployment recently. And then uh, you know, we're going to get into some underrated players because that's kind of a topic too. And you know, usually I'll ask Matt a question, and I know that Matt already knows the answer because I already showed him the answer. But I actually don't know who Matt's three underrated players are going to be and he doesn't know mine so i'm really interested to find out if we actually just picked the same three guys or not because that's possible um but one thing i thought was interesting is you know you look at outfields and one thing we've never really been able to measure before the stack era is outfield arm strength you know you can assume that roberto clemente had a cannon and he probably did but you'll never be able to put a number on that and now we can and i think that's really cool um, so what we did was we took the last two years of StatCast data and we applied it to 2017 rosters. So Adam Eaton is a national, Dexter Fowler is a cardinal, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually weighted it uh, a little bit more towards 2016 than 2015 because there were some guys who changed. You know, Steven Piscotti changed his mechanics, his arm strength went up. Gregory Polanco's arm strength went down probably because he was hurt. And uh, we came up with a number and I was really fascinated to see the team that was number one. It's the Minnesota Twins, which is cool, right? Yeah, well, last week uh, on the podcast when we were talking about them, you know, I said that, you know, I think they're going to be a fun team. I don't think they're going to be a good team, but no. I think they're going to be a fun team. And this is just another – and, I, and I, at that time, I didn't even know this fact, that they've got the best outfield arms in the game. So just adding that on to the case of why the Twins are going to be be fun to watch, well, let me make outfield a, arms. An important clarification here is because you, you did say best outfield arms, which is probably what most people Strong, say. Strongest. But it is strongest Strong. outfield arms because we are not necessarily including accuracy or you know making the right baseball decision. Oh. It's just pure velocity here. Although inaccurate outfield throws are often entertaining. Oh, yeah. Well, so. I, we saw Jackie Bradley Jr. in the playoffs air mail like 104 miles an hour, 10 feet over the catcher's head. Uh, it was great. So when you look at the Twins, what I didn't realize actually before I looked at this is they ended last year. At number one, they had the highest outfield arm strength. And what we did was we used our, our definition of competitive throws. We take the player's 90th percentile and take the average above that because everybody's got all these lobs back in that are tracked and don't really matter that much. So what I like about the Twins is they don't necessarily have one standout guy. Uh, with one exception, they have guys who are, are strong across the board, like Byron Buxton. Uh, his average last year on these competitive throws, 94.8 miles an hour. 
that's really good. But Max Kepler is at 92. Danny Santana, almost 97. Eddie Rosario at 95. The major league average was about 89. So all these guys are above the exception here. Robbie Grossman, who is a very below average 86 miles an hour. But I think that's cool. Like there's talent all over the place here. And I know you want to say something, but the Minnesota Twins, this is kind of their thing because they had Aaron Hicks. Right, and they had Miguel Sano, who's going to be an infielder now. We know Aaron Hicks had the hardest throw of the Statcast era for a team that cannot find velocity on the mound. They're really, really good at doing this in the outfield. Last year on the mound, ninety-one point seven miles an hour on their four-seam fastballs. We have them here, uh, a touch over ninety-two from the outfield. I love that so much. Yeah, there's a, there's a touch of irony there. And you know, the, the one thing that's it's always important to remember with outfield throws is that you know when you get to throw with your momentum with the crow hop, that's going to add you know. You know, anywhere from probably like three to six miles per hour from what you would throw if you're pitching off of a mound. So that's, you know, when you see these, you know, Aaron Hicks throwing 105 miles an hour with a perfect, you know, running start, well, that, I mean, indicates he'd probably throw 98 from the mound if he was a pitcher. And Aaron Hicks was a pitching prospect in high school as well, someone who some teams preferred as a pitcher, just to give you a little background there. So, you know, when you see Buxton throwing, you know, 95, 96 from the outfield, that probably means he would throw 90 from the mound. Another guy who was hitting low 90s as a pitcher in high school. Yeah, and so they did end up as the number one team uh, last year because they had a lot of the same guys. Uh, and I should know, I did not count guys who aren't going to play the outfield this year. Miguel Sano, I didn't account for. You know, Trey Turner, Ian Desmond, these guys are going to be infielders. Um, but I thought the, int- the interesting thing here was the next two teams on the list are Seattle and Colorado. And they got there in very different ways because Seattle kind of blew up their entire outfield. They made about 45 trades this winter. And what they did was they kept Leonis Martin, who 94 miles an hour is really good, but they got rid of Seth Smith, who had a pretty weak arm, 84 and a half miles an hour. They got rid of Nori Aoki, about a league average arm. And in comes Mitch Hanniger, 90.2 miles an hour. In comes Gerard Dyson, 92 miles an hour. Uh, and that's, that's you can tell they're trying to get more athletic and, and you know, just a better defensive outfield. And I think this is one way to do it. Obviously, these guys are going to track down more balls, but they're also stronger throwing arms. That all of a sudden, that big outfield in Seattle kind of like minnesota but you know better i think it's gonna be a lot of fun to watch too definitely you know i've you know i'm as everyone who listens to the show regularly knows i love draw dice <laughs> i know that you do <laughs> just fun to watch um and he's not the kind of guy you expect to have a big arm but he does um and so play all three outfield positions uh covers a lot of ground uh so that's a, that team they're gonna be interesting this is this this kind of has to be their year, right? It kind of has to be their year. Uh, third place team is Colorado, basically brought back all the same guys, except you'll get a full season of David Dahl, who came up last year and really showed a strong arm, 92.4 miles an hour. Didn't he like have like 98 in the Futures game or something? He, uh, yeah, 90, he, I think on back-to-back plays. He, he, oh, played, that's what he it was. played one inning or two innings or whatever and had like back-to-back plays of 96. Um, so the question with any of this stuff is, does it matter, right? Like how much does arm strength correlate to success? Because obviously there's a lot of things that go into that. And I can't say I've done a full study on that, but I will cherry pick one example. When we did this last year, last winter, before the season, we said that the Houston Astros were going to have the strongest throwing arms in baseball. And in reality, they actually had number two behind Minnesota. But if you look at a metric that's more about success than just strength, as Fangraphs does this, they calculate an arm metric, which is about, yes, getting assists, but preventing base runners from advancing and everything. The Houston Astros, who we projected to have the strongest arms in baseball, not only had the best arm metric last year, but had one of the top five seasons on record, which goes back to 2002. So, you know, maybe that's just one cherry-picked example. I don't know how much that would correlate if I did all 30 teams, but I thought that was really interesting. It is. And, I mean, while we're talking about the teams at the top of the spectrum, we probably should at least touch on the teams on the bottom of the spectrum. Uh, The Bay Area really stands out here. (laughs) I mean, I think it's no surprise that, you know, the Giants and Oakland don't have strong throwing arms. I mean, Chris Davis, Chris with a K, 
crushes the ball, but has the notoriously weak throwing arm. I mean, he, I think his average was like 72 miles an hour. You know, that's really low. You look at, uh, they had Coco Crisp last year, and obviously he's not there anymore. The Giants, you know, Denard Spans never really had a throwing arm. They don't really have any left fielder at the moment. Hunter Pence has been okay, um, but neither of those two teams in the Bay Area is going to really have any, any you know, velocity out there. And those two teams are like, you know, like basically like, five miles per hour below any other team in terms of average. It's like they are just like clearly clearly 29 yeah. and 30. Well, to, to set some context here, we had the Twins at uh, just a touch over 92. A ton of teams, probably like two-thirds of the teams in the league are somewhere between 88 and 90. And then you have the Giants and the uh, and the A's here down about, you know, 84, 83 miles an hour. I mean, that's a big gap. And, you know, it's not necessarily saying that they can't be productive, but there is a certain point where if you can't, reach a minimum threshold of velocity. Like I could be the smartest and most accurate thrower in the world, but I can't throw that hard. So I'm not ever going to be uh, successful. You have to have some amount of velocity in there. And basically to like, you know, to throw someone out from the outfield, I feel like at home plate, you almost, I feel like 90 is kind of like the low end of when you could get. And like that's in a, if you're close, yes. you know what I mean? So anyway, uh, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, we're going to look at that. I think for catchers sometime soon, but since we're in the outfield, we I know this is a couple days old now, but we can't have this show and not talk about the Pirates moving Andrew McCutcheon to right field. That was kind of a Super Bowl Sunday news dump, wasn't it, when that, that came out? Um, so the Pirates are going to move McCutcheon to right field. Starling Marte is going to go from left to center. Gregory Polanco from right to left. And I must toot my own horn a little bit because like back in November, I wrote a thing that said... The Pirates should move Andrew McCutcheon to right field. Now, obviously, everybody knows he was not a very successful center fielder last year. Negative 28 defensive runs saved. That's the second lowest season on record, which goes back to 2008. And, and the Pirates have gone on record. I think Clint Hurdle's gone on record and basically said, we tried some aggressive aggressive outfield positioning last year, particularly shallow with McCutcheon, and it, it didn't, didn't work. work. They, they, I mean, they took some of the blame sure. for what, his bad numbers, but obviously it's they still think it's him because it's, they're moving him. It's both. He's a below-average outfielder made to look worse by the position his team put him in. They played him very shallow because they expected their kind of ground-balling staff would get these shallow fly balls. Pitching staff didn't really cooperate, so all season there were these balls going over McCutcheon's head. He no longer has the speed he once did to track those down. So I don't think anybody, whether you're using advanced stats or the eye test or whatever, would say, oh, he's still a very good center fielder, especially, and this is no slight to McCutcheon, those other two guys they have out there are fantastic. I mean, being the third best between Marte and Polanco, it's not really like a slight against you. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's how you can, you know, in a lot of, with a lot of teams, it'd be hard to make this move. A franchise icon, you know, move, you know, move him off the position where he won an MVP award. But they have two guys who could man the position instead of him. And like, I mean, Marte plays left field there in that park with that huge left field. It's almost like playing center field. So they had an obvious replacement um he'll be great out there so it's it, you know that's i think that um, and mccutcheon certainly um you know took it in stride you know what happened he posted a, f- a photo of roberto clemente right on twitter which i thought was a pretty uh you can make that connection yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing is he did it and he pulled that off like there are a lot of guys who if they tried to compare themselves to like roberto clemente it would have come off in a very different way but no he's he's a franchise icon it's like yes you can do that but i'm glad you you brought up the size of the left field in PNC because McCutcheon also has the weakest throwing arm of the three guys. And you would really not think, oh, I'm going to take my weakest throwing outfielder and put him in right field. I mean, that's just not how baseball usually works. And there are a lot of questions from fans about that. Like, you know, why would they do that? Why not just put him in left? Um, but you're right. It's the size of the left field out there. It's actually enormous. It's probably the most difficult left field to play in baseball. So that actually, it's really interesting that you would put him in right field, even though he's got the weakest throwing arm. Because I, I think that actually makes more sense. I also think that this may be one of the things that, that 
we and by you should study, um, and you'll get Tom Tango <laughs> in, um, is, you know, it, this is one of those traditional baseball tropes, strongest arm needs to be in right field. But when you consider the, like, how often in the course of a season does that really... I, I looked it up when I wrote about this Nevada. I don't, have it. I don't have it in, fr- in front of me, but there was, I looked up the amount of times or opportunities I think they had to get a guy going first to third. And over the course of an entire season, it was like a difference of a dozen or something like that. It wasn't that much. So like one a week-ish or less or something so like I guess that. It like, seems to me like, you know, yes, all things equal. You want your strong arm in right field. But like, you know, some players may actually, and this, this is part of, part of the reason Mike said that in his piece from November, McCutcheon should be in right field is because the StatCast data was showing that McCutcheon was much better at going back and to the right. This is di- yeah. So this is directional. Directional, yes. Yeah. So we we actually looked at the balls that had between a twenty five percent and a seventy five percent catch rate, which is kind of the middle fifty. It's not the obvious hits. It's not the obvious outs. And invariably, the balls that he actually made nice plays on were going to his right. So if you're from the center fielder's position, that's, and that's towards just, left field. It, it wasn't just. To his right, it was also like deep back into the right. Back in, back into yeah. the right. But it's like if you if you kind of translate that shape to right field, what you're getting is that hard edge on the right field foul line. So he'll be good going into the right center field power gap or power power alley right now. Whereas if you put him towards left field and that was the case, then he's just kind of going into the stands and you're losing those batted ball opportunities. And that's sort of my point. I'm saying like if you have a player who is so clearly better at go directionally, and now we actually can really this isn't just a a a, a, a scout saying it for the eye test we actually have data that shows it right it's to me that's much more valuable than having the stronger arm in right field absolutely but what is interesting i looked this up for adam barry our pirates beat reporter last week uh they were the pirates pitching staff gave up far fewer balls hit to left field than they did to right field so mccutcheon will actually be in a more at least based on last year who knows if it'll repeat a, a more high trafficked area although i guess i can't say if those are more difficult balls if they're all the same difficulty i don't know just the more more batted balls were hit to right than left, which and kind of goes against everything we just said. And before I forget, because this is relative, relevant to the subject, I think that you should look at uh, when Yohan Cespedes was in center field, comparing himself going to his right versus going to his left, because it's odd that a player with his arm strength plays left field. It would seem like you'd want to play him in right field, but I'm wondering if the data shows that he's much better going back into the left and back to his right. I do like that our, our podcast is just a doubling future article ideas now, but that's a good idea. I'm going to look into that. So anyway, um, I think that's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. Best case scenario, he's an average right fielder. I don't think this is going to make him a star, but overall it should help the Pirates defense, right? I would think so. I think I'm I I'm expecting a big bounce back from the Pirates this year, and I think the gap between the Pirates and the Cubs is a lot smaller than people think. I still think wow. the, I still think the Cubs are better. Don't get me wrong. Are you I, skipping the Cardinals? Um, I'd put the Cardinals above the Pirates, not by a lot, but I would. I'll have, to, right. look into it, get, I'll have <laughs> to look into it. And uh, but I just I think the I think the Pirates are going to be back in the eighty-five to ninety win range comfortably again this year, and you know are really just I think this change will help them. I'm expecting a full, you know, excellent healthy season from Polanco. Cole will be back. You know, this is the year that maybe Glasnow takes a step forward. I just there's a lot of things that that I like about the way the Pirates are set up for this year. And I think people are kind of down on them because of last year where it just felt like a lot of things went wrong. And it just – it's called a hunch. Well, when we get to the end of the show, we're going to do our, our underrated players. And I, one of them is a Pirate for me. Okay. So we're going to get back to the Pirates. But first, uh, we got to talk about Matt Wieters, right? So Matt Wieters is still unemployed. Camps are about to open. He doesn't have a job yet. And uh, there was an article that came out the other day by Ken Rosenthal, basically talking to his agent, Scott Boris. And I, I thought Ken Rosenthal did a, a pretty good job of trying to frame it, like because obviously Scott Boris's job 
it's not to tell the truth. It's to sell his client. And he is the best at it. Probably the best there's ever been. And, you know, this, he was trying to make the case. Here's all the reasons why every team in baseball is crazy for not signing Matt Wieters. He's a franchise changer, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he I, I'm not sure if I buy, I don't know, any of that. Do you? I mean, I, I don't want to say he's he's not worth the roster spot because he certainly is. I do think there are teams he could help right now. But his upside is average, right? Like, that's useful. But I mean, to me, see, I sort of disagree with you. I think that actually the reason you sign Wieters is because I think that there's like a 15% chance he's like an elite catcher. Oh, I, see, I, I think lower than that. He's already he's going to be 31 this year. Like, how many catchers break out? post 30 what's well, up break i mean he has had all-star calibers and that's my point is like he's had granted he hasn't had one since like 2013 but he has had like seasons where he was well, he, he just made the all-star team which, which tells you that using like but you I know what I mean, like, he, he has had you know seasons where he was you know one of the top six or seven catchers in baseball it hasn't he hasn't hasn't happened in a couple of years but i'm gonna steal this stat from uh, jeff sullivan's piece who wrote, just wrote about this at fangraphs since matt weeders debuted his offensive performance way to runs created plus is very similar to A.J. Ellis, and no one would confuse A.J. Ellis for a breakout catcher, at least at the plate. Well, I guess, you know, but it seems to me that, you know, Weeders has sort of been more up and down. Sure. As, I mean, I he guess, lost like a whole season with the Tommy John surgery, absolutely. Again, I, I agree with you. I generally don't think – there are many good reasons why no one has signed him. Like, he's not – I'm you know, just reading the tea leaves, Boris is notoriously – demanding for his clients i'm sure he's looking for like a four-year deal and everybody's like uh, maybe a one-year deal exactly so you know there's a lot of reasons to, to see why he wouldn't you know he uh he had an 88 weighted runs created plus last year where 100 is average you wrote you wrote last week about why you know when, when the mets were rumored to be interested in him why the mets were better off with travis Darno, who was literally one of the worst hitters <laughs> in baseball last year well and that's true and the reason i said that's because every single year other than last year darno has been a better hitter you know obviously his health is always an issue darno is a better framer darno is younger and you know there's there's upside possibility there well i will say matt weeders you certainly get more certainty and if that's what you want is reliability then yeah i go matt weeders but you look at his numbers last year as you said uh 88 weighted runs created plus where 100 is average over the last three seasons that's 98 over the last five seasons that's 97 so he's never really going to be an above average hitter i don't think but if you have a hole to fill and you need a catcher who can be an average hitter and a below average framer because he is a below average framer that's that's a big thing for him although he's generally been pretty decent at throwing out runners uh you know i just i don't see any data here that really stands out too much and you were looking at his barrels right yeah, last year among 33 catchers with at least 10 barrels he ranked 21st in barrels per uh per ball, per ball and play, play that's not good that's, that's below like, average that's a- and you did mention it was above Buster Posey, although I will point out Buster Posey went two solid months without a home run last year. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten, forgotten about that. But just the, the names ahead of him on that list would include uh, Martin Maldonado, Jet Bandy, Christian Bedencore. So like it's those are real catchers. Yeah, those are catchers that exist. Yeah. So it's it's Weeders. It's he's um, probably you know this and this is you know a, a segue to our final segment. Like he's always been compared to that projection, Pagoda projection, I, when he was I on completely agree when basically this. this was what back when Nate Silver was still a baseball prospectus, when they had the Matt Weeders projection when after that big year in the minors, I think we're probably talking about two thousand nine, where basically projected Matt Weeders to be one of the top five players in baseball as a rookie. Right. And essentially was like this guy is a future Hall of Famer. And I He's either been trying to live. I don't know if he's been trying to live down to the, or live up to. The, he he just, might have nothing to do with him. Like yeah. he, it just he's been a solid to above average catcher, I guess, over his career, and he was expected to be a legend. So yeah. you could never live up to that, and then he didn't. So I don't know. I wonder if people still remember that because I think you're right for sure. But I just don't know how large the circle of people who still think about that is. I still I just think it raised expectations for him in such a way because it was actually one of the things that sort of broke into the 
um, the Matrix. Because it was this was right after basically Nate Silver and Pagoda had projected the Rays to be good, and no one believed it, and they went to the World Series. So then that offseason was like, whoa, like yeah. Pagoda, this is like this is like the new big thing. Let's look at what Pagoda says. And then Pagoda came out, and I was like, wait, what? Matt Wieters, a guy who's never played in the major leagues, is going to be one of the top five players in baseball. So it definitely that raised the profile of the Pagoda projections at the time, for better or worse. And I still think that like subconsciously, that projection has always sort of like put in people's heads that Matt Wieters was a superstar to be, and he never really lived up to that. With the occasion, with the exception of a couple of had his moments. But yeah. you, do you know you've unintentionally provided a fantastic segue to our final segment here? So Matt and I each selected a position player, a starting pitcher, and a reliever who we consider to be underrated players. And my position player is a catcher, and I'm going to use an insane pagoda projection to kind of make this case here. So we're going to launch right into this. My underrated position player, uh, Yasmani Grandal. I think Yasmani Grandel, because he hits like 220 every year. And there's a lot of people who look at a guy who hits 220 and they think, well, he must be awful. But if you look at Yasmani Grandel, last year he slugged 477, a 122 weighted runs created plus. So that is third of the 24 catchers with 300 plate appearances. He's a fantastic framer, plus 27 runs per baseball perspective, second only to Buster Posey. So that's value on both sides of the ball right now. Uh, I also looked at a similar barrels per swing. Uh, So so you had barrels per ball in play. So I looked at barrels per swing, just like when you make the swing decision, how often does that turn into success? Last year, 251 hitters had at least 10 barrels. Grandel's barrels per swing was 17th of 251. That's really good. Tied with Matt Carpenter. It's better than Murphy, Bryant, Donaldson, Story. So that guy's a slugger. He's valuable behind the plate. He gets on base. Literally, the only thing he doesn't do is hit for batting average, which I don't care about that. And what I was going to say about Pakoda, I read this like two minutes before we came on. I'd already picked him. 2017 Pakoda projections, which does include framing, when a lot of other systems do not. They have him third in baseball, behind Mike Trout and Buster Posey. Not saying I buy that in any way. I think that's insane. They, they po- I guess because of framing. Because of now. framing. Yeah. Because uh, Posey is the only better framer. Uh, so I'm not saying I actually think he's the third best player in baseball. That's ludicrous. But it does kind of go to the point. Nobody really thinks of him that way. He's underrated. I think he's a star. Like I, I wrote recently, the trade of Matt Kemp for Yasmani Grandal has turned out to be an unbelievable heist for the Dodgers. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Grandal is basically, he might be like the, in some ways, he's almost like the prototype of the modern, like, kind of like sabermetric type player in the sense that he's like, he brings value from framing, like very subtle. He doesn't hit for, he's basically this complete, like, you know, take, you know, take a rake kind of hitter, you know, so it's, his value is derived from things that are not like, um, you know, they're not going to, they're not. They're not gonna. They're, they're not gonna wow you in ways that yeah. like other players will. You, you can't see framing from the stands. Yeah. you know what I mean. You can see obviously hits home runs too, but you know he's not gonna leg out a triple. He's not mm-hmm. gonna you know give you that excitement other than hitting home runs. Uh, but I will say, you remember when the Dodgers traded for him? There were stories coming out of San Diego that the the Padres pitchers at the time did not like throwing to him. And then he came to the Dodgers, and he became basically Zach Granke's personal catcher. That year, Granke had like a 165 ERA and the 40 something inning scoreless streak. Grandal caught like all that. And then Granke goes to Arizona last year. And there are a lot of reasons I think he struggled, but one of them is he lost this fantastic framing catcher, and he went to a below-average framing catcher in Castillo and, and Gostowicz, and he had a really rough season. I do think that's a big part of it there. And they and then they D-backs went out and acquired a couple of catchers. Yeah, they got who Jeff are, Mathis. Yes. He can't hit, but he can frame. So that's my underrated position player. If you're like a hardcore baseball fan, maybe you already think he's great, but I think a lot of people don't think about no, him. I think that's that a. I'm, I'm, I all right. I buy with that pick. Your position player. Uh, is. Well, we'll we'll stay we'll stay stay in Arizona for a couple of reasons. One of which is the the impetus for some of this underrated talk. Well, you actually went AJ Pollock. <laughs> no, I actually oh. didn't go AJ Pollock. Um, 
the impetus for some of this uh, for this underrated talk was that Jeff Sullivan did a piece in Fangraphs saying how he thinks that AJ Pollock is still the most underrated player in baseball, and I actually think that Paul Goldschmidt is still okay. the most underrated player. In I baseball. can see this case. Let's hear. Um, through according to Baseball Reference, through age twenty eight, the most similar player to him is Jeff Bagwell. That's um, pretty good. And you look at other players through age 20, first baseman through age twenty eight in WAR. He's ahead of Todd Helton, Fred McGriff, Joey Votto, John Olerud, Rafael Palmero, Mark McGuire. Like he is basically on, on like a border, a Hall of Fame type track, and yeah. no one talks about Paul Goldschmidt that way. I realize he's finished second in MVP voting twice, and this year he actually had a career, not a career low, but a one thirty four weighted runs created yeah. plus. His bad year is a great year, <laughs> which was his lowest since two thousand twelve. So some might say that that's kind of a decline. But I'm not sure I buy that. He's still he's going into his age 29 season. Last year he actually set a career high in stolen bases. I was waiting for that, <laughs> which suggests that maybe you know he's still feeling pretty spry. He actually had 700 plate appearances last year. Yeah, he's, he he's led, a good he led, defender. He led the National League in plate appearances, as, as our friend Mike Farron would call him, America's first baseman. All right, he, I like he, this. He he missed the 30-30 because it didn't hit the real run. Surprisingly, because um, there hasn't been a 30-30 player in baseball. I care. It's been like five years. We we just had to rank. Uh, you know, we did our top ten rankings for every position for MLB Network, and he was my number. I want to say number four uh, in, in that group with like Vado, Miggy, or Rizzo, and then I think uh, Freddie Freeman had number five. It's you can go any direction with those five guys. So I, I I do think you're right. Any guy who plays for a team that's not a major market, that's not a winning team, is always gonna not have the attention that he should. But Paul Goldschmidt plays on the Red Sox or something. He's a superstar. And it's also that you know he's you know he he's one of these guys who doesn't like he does a lot of things well as opposed to doing one thing great. And that's sort of like was the old Bill James thing for why players are underrated. Underrated players are the guys who do everything. There's like the Tim, the quote unquote Tim Raines problem. Whereas like instead of uh, doing one thing that like blows people away, you do a lot of things well. Okay, well let's move on. So now uh, you've already gone with a superstar pitcher who's underrated, and I'm going to go uh, a superstar first baseman who's underrated. I'm going to go with a superstar pitcher who's underrated. But I can back this up. Uh, my superstar or my underrated starting pitcher, you Darvish. Now I'll tell you why. I think because he got hurt and because he missed so much time, you don't really think about him in that same way because you think about oh, all these ace pitchers. There's Kershaw and Bumgarner and all these guys, you know, Chris Sale. Uh, you Darvish came back last year. Like, oh, he came back and they got hurt again. But anyway, he came back after that. He threw 103 innings uh, following his return from injury last year. He struck out 132 guys. So that's a career best strikeout rate that's equal to Max Scherzer, who's really, really good. He also had a career low walk rate. That's kind of the last thing that's supposed to come back from Tommy John surgery. So he comes back. He strikes out guys better than ever. He's walking guys less than ever. And what I really liked about this is, you know, he was kind of famous for having eight different pitches, right? And he still throws a lot of pitches. But he uh, he kind of credited this to Jonathan Lucroy, who got traded over to Texas in the summer. He started throwing his his just regular four-seam fastball a lot more often. And the reason he did that is because it's really good. So we looked at spin rate here. 187 pitchers threw at least 500 fastballs. His spin rate of 2,511 RPM was sixth. He's an incredibly high spin fastball that's really hard to hit, especially when you pair it with all the other junk he throws. And Jonathan Lucroy is like, look, that's a really good pitch. Just trust it more. And he did. He stopped throwing the sinker, which wasn't really doing much. Uh, and his fastball rate went from about 30% when he came back to a little over 50% by the end of the season. So I think that's cool. You had a guy who was already great, kind of lost some note, uh, you know, notice on the scene because he got hurt, changed his pitches when he came back and was even better. I think he's going to have a fantastic season this upcoming year. I could see it. Yeah. yeah. You, Darvish, I'm a fan. I love watching him pitch. Yeah. Um, I actually had a hard time coming up with a pitcher that I felt was like a starting pitcher that I felt was underrated. You know, it felt like more when I look at guy, look, looking at players that thought were underrated, it was they were less underrated and more like guys I thought might break out. 
you know, like Marcus Stroman. I don't think he's underrated, but I do think he's about to like break out. I almost went with James Paxson. <laughs> um, I actually think, and this may sound weird, um, I think that the most underrated pitcher in baseball might be Clayton Kershaw. <laughs> I, I sort of like I think that he's basically in the midst of a five-year run that might be the best five-year run in baseball history and I actually don't think he's talked about enough in that way it's a weird I, I thing have to no, say. I have no words <laughs> I think it, I think that because I think sometimes baseball fans do so much to romanticize the past we sometimes miss what's right in front of us okay and I think that we may be missing right in front of us just how good uh, Clayton Kershaw is. So our our list of underrated players is veered into superstars. <laughs> so, okay. Like, my reliever is not a superstar. Mine is not either. Uh, but as soon as I say this name, you're going to roll your eyes and go, oh, of course. And it is not Seth Liga. Uh, since I already said we were going to go back to Pittsburgh, my reliever is Felipe Rivero, who I've been talking about for quite some time. He, if you don't know him, was part of the deal. Uh, he went from Washington to Pittsburgh for Mark Melanson at the deadline. And Pirates fans, man, they hated that deal. They absolutely hated it. They said, oh, you're trading our all-star closer for this guy we don't know. We're giving up on the season. And they didn't make the playoffs, which absolutely had nothing to do with Mark Melanson being there and not being there. Felipe Rivero, I, I think he's fantastic. So last year, 77 innings. Struck out 92, but he had a 409 ERA. So a lot of people say, oh, well, he's not that good. ERA for relievers doesn't matter that much. He did walk too many. I'll grant you that. Uh, he had, he. so there's two things I really like about him. The first one is StatCast last year tracked three lefty pitchers who touched triple digits, and he's one of them. So that's cool. Obviously, he throws really, really hard. He also had uh, a 58% swinging strike rate on his changeup. His changeup is just such a silly pitch when you pair it with that 100-mile-an-hour fastball. So not only did that lead every pitch in baseball this year as the highest swinging strike rate, that was the fourth-highest changeup swinging strike rate in recorded history, which goes back to 2008, more than 1,000 pitcher seasons. So you have this guy who can throw triple digits from the left side. He can drop in this unbelievable changeup that nobody can touch, and all of a sudden, that's not a bad deal for the Pirates. That looks like an amazing deal for the Pirates. It's an amazing deal for the Pirates, no matter how you—it's like when you basically—you're not going to the playoffs, you've got a closer— who's going to leave as a free agent, and you flip him for... For, for this guy. And, for, and for, they got another guy, too, uh, Taylor Hearn. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess, yes, they could have given Melanson the qualifying offer and gotten a comp pick, but Rivero is much more valuable as far as I'm They concerned. have him at the minimum salary for, like, five more years. I, so he's an underrated guy. Uh, I think people don't really think about him. I don't know if he's going to be the closer or not this year in Pittsburgh, but it doesn't matter. He's going to pitch high-leverage innings, and he's going to blow guys away, and I really expect big things out of him this year. Um, my underrated relievers, I think I, I, I think you might have tipped me off to how underrated he was last year, um, is Addison Reed. <laughs> who in, in the, since coming to the Mets has basically been as good as any reliever. I want to say any reliever, like amongst second, outside like the top three, he's basically like as good as anyone. Um, over the last two years, uh, his fan graphs were 3.6, which is eighth among all relievers in baseball. It's basically tied with Familia, the Mets closer. That's ahead of Ken Giles, Mark Melanson, Roberto Arsuna, Wade Davis, Craig Kimbrell. You know, walk rate in 2016 was by far career low, below 5%. Um, his strikeout minus walk rate was 25.7 in 2016, which was 11th among relievers, way ahead of Familia. Um, he's, added, when he added that, that Worthen slider after coming to the Mets, he's become like, you know, in terms of setup men. Uh, as good as there is. And he might start the season closing if Amelia gets suspended. Yeah. He might actually be an extremely important part of that bullpen. Yeah, although I, you know, I'm always of the belief that sometimes the, the, the guys who you, you could be more flexible with are more valuable, You've, you know, just because you don't feel so – you have to use them in the ninth inning. All right, so our underrated players range from Clayton Kershaw to Addison Reed. <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun. I'm glad we did that. That is our show for this week, the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Matt Myers here. Join us next week. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team.